welcome to Peace Lab, the podcast exploring the face of Mennonite peacemaking in the 21st century. I'm Hannah Heinzicker, the Executive Director for the Mennonite Inc., and I'm joined today by my trusty co-host, Jason Boone of the Peace and Justice Support Network. Hi, Jason. Always nice to be back with you in the Peace Lab, Hannah. That's right. And today we have a guest. I'm very excited about this conversation. We've got Pastor Horace McMillan here with us, and Pastor Horace is a tent-making pastor for Open Door Mennonite Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, So Horace, thanks for joining us today. For having me. And I reached out to Horace after I read a really thought-provoking essay that he wrote for Mennonite Church USA's Menno Snapshots blog called Blood on the Altar of Personal Protection that explored ideas about gun violence and gun control in the United States. And Horace, in that post, you shared a story about your daughter's godmother, who was actually in Las Vegas during the recent mass shooting that took place there. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that story and how it's impacted your desire to kind of speak out and write about gun violence. Yes, um, my um, my daughter's godmother, uh, Lynette, was at a was at a work function. At part of her work function, she was in Las Vegas entertaining clients at the concert. You know, all of a sudden sounds came out, and at first she thought maybe they were fireworks or something like that, and then she realized that there was um, that there was shooting. The first um, inclination was to run, that they needed to get out, they needed to get away. But people were being um, hit in the crowd. And in fact, as she ran, someone next to her um, was hit and injured. And then she was scared, but she also didn't want to just leave the person behind. And so she stopped and offered some of her, some of her clothing. But she was, the whole time, she was just absolutely uh, terrified. She didn't know at the time if the blood that she was seeing on her, on her person, on her body, was her blood or if it was the blood of the person that, um, that helped her. She was very terrified. She was able to get out and get to safety. And later on, back at her um, hotel room, she was, as she was taking a shower, she realized that she was washing someone else's blood out of her, out of her hair. And it was just, um, the whole thing's just been really tough for her. She's um, been going to some counseling to deal with some of the post-traumatic stress that she's experienced um, afterwards. She um, seems to be getting along pretty well now, but it was um, a very, very uh, difficult experience. And I really started thinking about that. But in the space of that same week, um, about an eight-day period, there were uh, two other incidents that took place. And that's one of the things that really motivated me to write and reflect on this. So you had two other incidents take place. And, and we're, we're talking now just a few days after the horrific incident in Texas as well. So there are more and more places that are touched by this. But you had some incidents that, uh, that touched your community there at Open Door or the broader community. Can you tell us about those? Oh, yes, absolutely. There was um, a young woman um, just reached her 21st birthday. Her boyfriend picked her up from work. And while they were stopped at a uh, gas station, apparently her boyfriend had been in an altercation with some folks earlier in the day. And um, they met up at the gas station and shooting uh, broke out and she was caught in the middle. And she died on the scene. He ended up going to the hospital in critical condition. Um, Fortunately, he's uh, recovered. But there's a 21-year-old woman. It's a young woman that I... um, had the honor of anointing her when, when her parents dedicated her as a child. And so that was something that was very, very moving. Also, I had another um, former colleague that I used to uh, work with in my day job. There is a gentleman that we had had lunch together on, on a number of occasions. Apparently, he had some sort of mental break or um, just some sort of um, breakdown. And at one point, he was involved in a five-hour standoff with the police, at times holding a gun to his head, threatening to, um, to kill himself. He's um, very fortunate that the police used a great deal of restraint. Um, eventually, he had gone back into his residence and, and passed out. And 
um, the police had sent like uh, robot cameras to to kind of look in the house before they before they went in. They were about to send a team to go in and get him. They found that he was passed out, and they were able to um, take him alive. Um, and as far as I know, I've reached out to him. I haven't spoken to him directly, but I understand he's doing pretty well. His employer did not terminate him, um, so he's been given a second chance, and the police only charged him with misdemeanors. So he has another chance to go forward with life. It could have ended far more tragically. The thing that's kind of ironic about about him is that we had had a lot of um, talks about guns in the past, and he was a big believer in guns for uh, personal protection and defending the house and for safety. And I had always told him that, you know, that's a really bad bet. Um, a gun in the house is much more likely to have something bad happen with you or a member of your family than it is that you will defend yourself from, from a bad guy. And he just never did believe that the statistics applied to him. Well, this is the thing that, that seems so striking about what's happening right now in the current conversations across the United States. Um, just saw an infographic from the United States that basically said, you know, the reason the United States has the most mass shootings is because we have the most guns per capita per person. And, and one thing that was so striking to me in your blog post when you started talking about why we're not addressing gun control after these horrific events, you kind of said that it's not an issue of arguing about policy, but it's a conversation about religion and that we made this idea of personal protection or religion in the United States. And I wonder if you could dig into that a bit more. What, what do you mean by that? It, it made sense to me, but dig into it for us here. Sure. You know, one of the things that's um, very interesting is, is that people are, are very scared. They're scared about what can happen to them. And they um, are really trusting that if they have a gun, that is something that makes them feel safe. And they um, believe in the idea that the gun is something that keeps them safe from their neighbors. A person, um, a friend of mine in another um, private blog that I'm a part of called it two-legged vermin. She likes to keep a gun to protect herself from two-legged vermin, you know, referring to human beings. And of course, I have, have some other friends and contacts that really believe that you need to have guns available or else the government may may become tyrannical and you need to have the guns available to keep the the, uh, the government honest. And it seems to me that these are deeply held beliefs, but they're, they're, not, they're not data-based beliefs. They're not evidence-based beliefs, but they're beliefs that people hold uh, very uh, near and dear. They're believing that if they have a gun, it's something that can keep them safe. And it's um, generally a reaction to fear because uh, people are very, very um, afraid. I have a friend who had grew up a Quaker, and he, so he had grown up a pacifist, but at one point when he lived in the suburbs of D.C., there had been break-ins in his neighborhood, and he, um, out of that fear, he bought a, bought a shotgun. Fortunately, he never used it. I don't think he has it now, but it was just a, a period where it was a response to being afraid that you wanted to have a tool to protect yourself, to keep you safe, and people are trusting the gun to do that. Yeah, that's, that interpersonal fear is always there. Now, as we mentioned in the, in the brief aftermath from Texas, we're thinking about what does it mean to keep your church safe? And there are conversations coming up about well, what are our, what's our responsibility as a church to protect ourselves from lone gunmen or, or whatever the danger may be. I, I don't know. Have you had a chance to think about that, Horace, like what it means for Open Door or for any of our other churches to, to engage with this new reality where, where worship spaces just aren't safe? And it's interesting that some, something that's getting drawn out of that story, too, is that one of the people in the church had a rifle and shot back. And, and some people are seeing that as well, this is what we need to do to protect ourselves. But. Right. Yeah, um, I actually have um, a pastor friend of mine. He's in another faith tradition, but he's a pastor friend of mine that posted a blog that it was um, that um, provocatively titled that it was time for the it was time for the people of God to men of God to uh, pack eat, um, and specifically um, used the passage about um, 
you know, if, if you don't have a um, if you don't have a sword, then you need to sell what you have to get a sword. And they use that as the justification for uh, Christians arming themselves, and they used it as justification for the um, for the right to keep and bear arms as being a guy given right. I just um, you know, I, I really um, couldn't have a more profound disagreement with that with that approach. It it seems to me it's one thing to say that we live in a fallen world and we're fallen people and we're not able to um, to live the way Jesus modeled. But it's another thing to say that that Jesus would want us to gun our enemy down. Um, to me, that seems to go against the heart of Jesus' uh, teaching and what he called us to do. Um, Jesus understood, and we understand that we live in a dangerous world, but I believe that we've committed to, to live a different way. We don't answer evil for evil, but we answer evil with good. So I believe it's appropriate to be vigilant, um, to, to maybe be watching um, for for someone who may come into the church, it may be vigilant to have um, to have an escape plan. It may be vigilant to try and um, have a way to to wrestle with people, to try and uh, disarm them. Um, so that way, there could be conversation and mediation and things like that. But the whole idea that we're going to arm up and respond by um, by trying to shoot them before they can shoot us that that just does not seem to be what uh, what Jesus called us to do. Kind of returning back to this this idea, if what we're really having when we try to talk about gun control is a clash of religion in some ways, or a religious conversation, how, as people of faith, should we talk to other people? About well, that was a part of the reason I wrote the, the blog that I wrote. Um, it was a little bit provocative, but it was provocative with a purpose. In my uh, blog, I said that the, that the gun has become a false idol, that we are worshiping the gun, and we are trusting in the gun rather than God to keep us safe. We're trusting the gun to um, to to protect us. It's it's a false god. Um, it's the gun has not protected us. Um, we have more guns in this country than any place in the world. We have more gun violence. We have more deaths. We lose something like 30, 35,000 people a year to gun violence. So if this is a false god, as I say, then these are all blood sacrifices um, that we're making, and no idol will ever give you give us what we're looking for. I grew up in an African-American church tradition, and one of the most popular sermons or passages to preach from was what we would call the story of the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I think it takes Christians having the realization that there may be times when we face a fiery furnace. There are times that we do live in an unsafe world, and we live with uncertainty and violence. And just as the three um, Hebrew young men were going to face the furnace, they had a choice to make. They had a choice to live by their values and bow down for the um, offer of safety, or they had a choice to live by their values and trust in, uh, trust in God for the deliverance. And one of the things that the um, young men said is that we don't even have to think about this. Um, we believe that God is able to deliver us, and even if not, we still won't bow. And I believe that that's the uh, perspective that Christians are, are challenged to take. Is I, I know good and well we're living in a dangerous world, and there are people out there with ill intent that may want to harm us, but we still have to trust that, that God can keep us safe and deliver us from the difficult situations should they arise. But even if not, even if it means that we're going to go into the furnace, that we're going to die, we're still not going to bow down to our fear, um, and we're going to stand up and be courageous. And I, I think that's part of what it's going to take, is just um, a lot of people beginning to um, say that, you know, this is not the way I'm going to live. I'm going to live. I'm, I'm going to live a different way. I'm curious, Horace, if we're taking our faith into the public square on this issue or, or thinking about what that looks like, 
yeah, this has become a religion, you know, religion and politics are, you know, it's so tough to move people off of wherever they're set on this. So, uh, so how do we start as, as a peace church and as people who want to follow Jesus, how do we start to get this idea out there of, hey, how do we you know, put some space between us and this fear that's driving us to these things? How can we start to really change the conversation locally? And then hopefully that has a, a larger effect. You know, I've shared some of the theology behind it in terms of some of the policy behind it is pointing out that, you know, we follow this course of action and it really hasn't delivered greater safety in the United States. Um, and we can look at the example of other countries in the world. In Australia, there was a, um, after they had a mass shooting some 20 years ago, they decided that they were going to have a massive uh, gun turn-in program and they um, outlawed assault rifles. One of the things that they were scared of at the time is that, and it's an argument that I hear now, is that America has so many guns. If we give up our gun, we're not going to have any way to protect ourselves because the bad guys most certainly aren't going to give up their guns. And so one of the things that you can actually see is that, you know, in other countries when they've actually tried this, there was not an increase in, in gun invasion, home invasions, when people in Australia um, gave up their guns. Uh, so some of it is mixing fact to, uh, to confront fear. That's one of the things that needs to happen. To understand that if you keep a gun in the home, um, the last time I've looked at numbers, it's something like eight times more likely that something bad is going to happen with that gun than you are going to be able to defend yourself from a predator. Um, rather your kids find it, um, rather, um, rather you have, like my friend, just a, a bad day, a break, where, um, where you were emotionally upset. I know some folks that have had their homes broken into and had their guns stolen, and so the gun is actually now in the hands of, uh, of criminals and, and lawbreakers. It's about eight to one. So if you're keeping a gun in the home as a form of personal protection, that's a really bad, it's almost like the, the seatbelt thing. There were many people when the seatbelt laws first came into effect that were really opposed to it. And they pointed out that there were certain car accidents where having a seatbelt could actually injure you and cause you to die where if you didn't have a seatbelt, but the thing is, when you look at it in terms of in the aggregate, seatbelts save lives. Seatbelts save lives. And it would be the same thing with, um, with, with gun laws. Um, there's a number of things that we can do that, um, that would actually save lives that would not cause people to be more um, endangered. They'd actually be safer um, statistically if we followed a different course. And I, and I think that's one of the things to talk about is trying to confront the fear with facts. Yeah. You're, as you were talking, I was remembering, I don't know if either of you follow The Onion, which is a sat satirical newspaper, but every time there's a mass shooting, you know, they put up this same article, just change the picture that says, no way to prevent this. So it's the only nation where this regularly happens. Um, yes. Yeah, that, I, I posted that one again this, this week when it, when it came up. One of the things that we often ask people to reflect on on this podcast, because it's called Peace Lab, we're trying to reflect on what peacemaking looks like, what peace means. What would progress, what would peace look like? In some of these contexts? It's very difficult. Um, but say, for example, I, I know a young man that has recently kind of turned things around. He was, as a teenager, he was someone who actually broke into a lot of houses, broke into a lot of houses in the neighborhood that I, um, that I live in. You know, eventually he got caught and he went to a youth camp and things like that. And he, he finally reached a place where he understood that he wasn't going to be able to steal enough to actually make a living because he couldn't break into enough houses and steal enough things and sell the things for enough money to, to make a living. So he's actually gone back to school and gotten his GED and, and gotten a job, and he's trying to make it, um, make it right. I believe what happens with, with, with a lot of people is that they, um, they don't really have hope. 
I knew uh, um, when I lived in Chicago, I actually knew someone who used to be a crack dealer. He was a young man, and he would uh, cook the crack and deal it um, as quickly as he could to make as much as he could. And he ended up um, getting a job at Marshall Fields Department Store, what was now Macy's, but it was Marshall Fields Department Store at the time. And he was selling rugs, and I think after his first year of doing that, he made something like $18,000, which wasn't a whole lot of money, but it was enough for him to live on. And then he became so encouraged by that, he realized that he could actually make a living legitimately and that he didn't have to um, resort to that. I, I believe a lot of the crime issues that we have are a hopelessness issue, and they're an opportunity issue. And so one of the best ways of reducing crime is to give people um, better, better opportunities. There's a lot of people that would not resort to crime if they, if they really believed that they could make it in a legitimate fashion. And Horace, like one of the things that, or conversations I'll end up having around the gun issue with folks, and it almost becomes an urban-rural divide. People in rural contexts will say, and I think there's legitimately so, a gun's a tool for where I live, you know, and they're not everyone's not a little house on the prairie having to hunt for all their food, but it still has sort of a utilitarian purpose or it can in some way. And you're not proposing, and I don't think anyone who wants to curb gun violence isn't saying take every you know, shotgun that's been handed down you know, from generation away from people. So, so how, do you, how do we sort of separate guns that we would recognize as being helpful or utilitarian in some way and some that are just destructive and there's really no, no higher purpose? Well, yeah, I, I see, and this is where as a policy issue, I don't, I don't believe it's that, that complicated. For those who do want to have a gun in the home for personal protection, most of them, they don't need a Glock to do that. A normal handgun will get that done. And for, um, for hunters, I have a lot of friends now in Mississippi who like, love going out to the deer stand, and the, that's how they spend their weekends and how they spend their time, and they go out um, and, and do ducks and duck season and whatnot. But I don't know any of those folks that are using an AR-15 to, um, to hunt. Um, nor um, am I uh, sure that any of them need a 30 capacity clip um, to do that or high capacity clips um, to do that. So as an issue, it's, it's not really that, that difficult for people to have handguns in the home for personal protection and to have the rifles that they need for, um, for hunting or uh, sometimes if they're in an area where there's some wild animals, whether it's um, wild boar or, um, or wh- whatever it is that they're, um, that they're concerned about in their area, alligators from some of my friends down in Louisiana. It's not that difficult to come up with the, uh, with the policy. Um, a lot of the types of guns that are that are out there really have no no use other than for killing large numbers of people at a um, at a single time, and and that's that's what we're looking at um, regulating. Um, there's a faction that believes that any move towards regulation is a slippery slope that's going to lead to taking guns away, and I just uh, don't see that happening because the um, but the majority of people I know they they want they want to have um, they want to have access to to a gun and uh, the constitution is currently uh, interpreted guarantees that right so no one's going to take no one's going to take the gun away but there's a lot of guns that that probably don't need to be out there in terms of um, in terms of assault rifles the other thing that i think would be simple is um, for the shooting that just took place down in down in texas the gentleman that had an assault rifle shouldn't have um, shouldn't have been able to um, buy a gun but it hadn't been reported to the fbi in the national database one of the things that you see is that there are many, many states that have not set up adequate resources to make sure that all the people um, are reported to the FBI database. On top of that, there's actually holes in the database itself in that um, people can actually buy guns from private parties, and um, which often happens at gun shows. 
and there's no um, no background check required for that. So the idea that you have mandatory background checks for every gun transaction, and the idea that you actually um, maintain the database, that you make sure that all the states and agencies are reporting to the FBI all those people who are no longer eligible to own um, firearms. I think that's something that would make a whole lot of sense. Um, perhaps there should be mandatory gun safety classes the, the same way that we have um, mandatory um, driving safety classes before a person goes. Um, and perhaps there should actually be insurance. You know, I don't know, but th those are things that I don't think are very, um, you know, again, the policy is not very difficult. And when you actually look at where most people are and what most people use, when I look at what my friends who are hunters have, the, the types of weapons that we're talking about, you know, the, the, the uh, mass shootings haven't taken place with people coming in with hunting weapons. Well, Horace, I was struck as we're kind of winding down here. I was struck by the way you you ended your blog post using Joshua twenty four. Choose this day who will who you will serve, and that seems to be like a pretty strong call to many of us who see being Christ followers as at the core of our identity. We serve and follow. Thank you. I do I do believe that there's a choice that we have to make. Do we bow down to our fear, and do we and do we allow fear to drive us in terms of our decisions, or do we live faithfully? Do we choose to follow the example of Jesus and trust that, that God can bring about good? That I believe that that's a choice that every single one of us is called to make. Horace, I think you just laid out uh, common sense gun legislation for, for the nation and, and the church and everyone to follow. So it's clear you've put a lot of time into this and you, you've had incidents in, in your community that you've talked about and, and it's touched you. I, I guess uh, the last thing I would say, like, how would you en encourage churches uh, just to start to engage with this issue, to start to have the conversations uh, just to start to reflect deeply on this, if they haven't done it before, how did they get started in that direction? Well, sometimes as pastors, it's difficult for us to bring up controversial issues. And for a lot of pastors, this would be a controversial issue. But I think it starts by, um, you know, just kind of asking the question. And I think in a lot of cases, it, it requires people just kind of sharing their stories and, and kind of speaking up. I think um, sometimes the more stories that we share, it makes it personal and makes it kind of real. For a lot of people, they see the story on the news and that's still something happening a long way away over there, but it's not something that people really think of happening to them. Or they think when they see gun violence, the person was necessarily involved in a gang or uh, dealing drugs or that sort of thing. And they don't think about the way gun violence actually comes and touches the lives of regular folks who, um, who are just living regular lives. For those who vote, we have to make it a voting issue that you really have to decide that this is something that we'll um, vote on um, because there's a, a lot of folks that find um, in, in the elected office that, that take a lot of money from the, um, from the gun lobby and they, um, they usually find an excuse to oppose any kind of reasonable regulation. And they say, well, I would support regulation, but this one goes too far. And wh whatever it is, it always goes too far. And so sometimes as voters, um, we may have to make a decision that this is something that's, that's very important to me and that I'm, I'm not voting for for anyone that is getting money from the gun lobby. Well, Horace, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. I hope everyone who's listening goes out and reads your, your whole blog in its entirety. It's both on the Mennonites website on MennoniteUSA.org as well. Hey, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I was just saying th thanks as well, Horace. Thank you. It was nice meeting you. And for those of you listening at home, thanks for tuning in today. If you um, like this podcast, if you listen to us often, it helps us out if you can go um, onto Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and either subscribe or give us a five-star rating there. That helps other people find our show. And we'll be back in two weeks. 
Thanks for joining us. 